We are starting a new series tonight uh, called Behold the Lamb. Uh, over the next few, well, I was going to say months, but, or weeks, but it'll probably be months because of the on and off again nature of uh, the Sunday evening sermons. We're going to do a deep dive on a particular concept, the Lamb, throughout the Bible. Uh, beginning, of course, in the uh, Old Testament into the New Testament. Uh, it's one of the more interesting word pictures used to describe Jesus. Beginning in his ministry, of course, recognized by John, and the, the, the title of the series comes from a passage in, in uh, the Gospels that John, he sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb. Uh, that's the, the, the reference that is, is being used for the title of the series. But of course, that is not the, the first part of the Lamb in the Bible, and it's not the end, all the way to the end of the Bible, really. In, in Revelation, we have the Lamb and the the seals and the bulls, and oh, it's so exciting. We'll get to that eventually, not, of course, tonight. And, and we think about this title slash description slash image. You know, it's, it's sort of a, what is it exactly? It's, it's an analogy, not really an analogy, kind of an analogy. It was a literal lamb in the Old Testament. So, you know, metaphor, a word picture. It is rooted, of course, in the Old Testament story and commandment. Not just commandment. We'll talk about the Levitical laws about the lamb and all the different sacrifices, but it begins really with a story. And over the course of this study, we're going to examine all of these different elements, the idea of the lamb throughout the Bible. I want to begin tonight with a brief lesson on biblical... I, I did this wrong, and then I corrected it in my, my notes beforehand, fortunately. Typology, not typography. That's what I had originally. It's not typography. Uh, typology is the, the word for this. Uh, biblical typology. And, and it comes this, from this idea of types and antitypes. Language used by biblical scholars to describe a set of relationships between Old Testament and New Testament ideas. Uh, when a New Testament idea is said to fulfill, quote-unquote fulfill, something in the Old Testament, or when a biblical idea is described as a, a, literally the Bible uses this word a type, or sometimes it's copy, or time, sometimes it's shadow of another idea in the Bible. Sometimes one thing is described as a pattern of another thing. And again, this is not just an academic concept. This is how the Bible writers themselves talk about some ideas, not all ideas. And I want to be very clear up front. Not everything in the Old Testament is a type or a pattern or a copy or a shadow. Not everything is. But a lot of things in the Old Testament are. And, and again, this is not just an idea that scholars have come up with. This is how the Bible writers themselves talk about some things. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's that? That's Adam, right? And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. And sin indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin was not counted where there is no law. We'll come back to this very unusual verse in just a minute. Well, I say just a minute. Towards the end of the sermon. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, Romans 5, it's hard to just drop this into con without context, right? We think about what is this talking about. This word, uh, the Greek is typos or tupos, depending on how you pronounce it. An impress, a print, a mark, a, 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 sometimes it's used of a wound, like the, the mark of a wound. A delineation, an image, a formula, a statue, a scheme. It's one of those Greek words that has a billion definitions, like so many other Greek words. They just use all the same words for all the same stuff. But what is he saying here? The type in the Old Testament, Adam, being compared to Jesus. Sin came through one man, and then what? 
Righteousness also came through one man. One man providing something to all. In one case, it was something bad. In the next case, it's something good. But the uh, comparison that's being made, Adam is a type of the one who was to come, being Jesus. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 3.18, a different idea, but similar language. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being uh, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, in English, we have like three or four words that are in this phrase, but this is anti Tupas, antitipos, I don't know, it said whatever that is, but this is the other f version of that, right? Type and antitype. This is a corresponding stamp or form, something that corresponds to something else, a copy or a representation. And we can see here, okay, in, the, in Romans, Adam is a type of the one who is to come, Jesus. Here it goes the other way. Baptism is a corresponding thing to the water of Noah, the water in the days of Noah, the flood, which, of course, he was brought through the water and saved through the water. And it's not perfect. This is a thing we have to understand about these types and any types. The correlation is not one-to-one. -one. That's kind of the point. It's not just the same thing again, but there is a lesson to learn from the previous thing that we apply to the current thing. In this case, the flood of Noah corresponding to the waters of baptism. Not that the water saves you. That's his point, right? In fact, Noah in the Old Testament was saved from the water. He wasn't saved because of the water. It was the opposite, right? And that's why it's anti-type as opposed to the type. Something that corresponds, but is not exactly the same thing. We have a baptism is the salvation that we have through water. And so when we think about this idea, types and anti-types, copies, shadows, uh, there's some other words we'll talk about. At the center of most of these, is Jesus. Not all of them, but at the center of most of these is Jesus, either in the incarnation as a human. We can think about uh, he becomes human like us, like us in every respect, and yet he is more than a human, right? He's more than us. We think about the work that he did, does on earth. He says he comes not to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill the law to bring it to its full effect. In his sacrificial work on the cross, this is going to be one of the central ways that we're going to talk about the lamb, of course. The idea of the lamb is, is, is in the sacrificial work on the cross. But then, of course, the church and the system he established, these, these rules and these ordinances, which are not exactly like the things in the Old Testament. There's some similarity, but we learn a lot about what Jesus wants for us now from the shadows or the copies or the types that came before in the Old Testament. And again, I want to be very clear about this. How can I say this in the most clear way? Not everything in the Old Testament is intended to be a type of something in the New Testament. We have to be very clear about that. A lot of the stuff in the Old Testament, it just happened in the Old Testament, that's it. So we have to be careful not to go overboard with this idea of types and antitypes. Not everything in the Old Testament is some pattern that has fulfillment in the New Testament. Sometimes the stuff in the Old Testament is just stuff that happened in the Old Testament, and that's fine. But there is a lot. And more than any other author, the author of Hebrews uses this idea, this theological device. Maybe it's a literary device. 
to explain the way that Christ's covenant is better than the one given by Moses. The comparison between what God gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament and what God has given to us through Jesus. Nowhere else is this more abundantly clear than Hebrews. This is, in fact, one of the main points of Hebrews. There's a lot of texts. We're not going to look all Hebrews, obviously, but we're going to read quite a bit of Hebrews where he talks about this idea of the shadow or the copy or the type, that the thing that came before is a representation of the thing that came later, but the thing that came later is better. It's more fulfilled. It's, it's the perfected version of the thing that's in the Old Testament. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. The point of what we are saying is this. We have such a great high, uh, such a high priest, rather, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Um, and as we go, actually, I should have said this as we go through first. Note the things he lists, the elements of the Old Testament. Well, one is the high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. The throne itself is a thing that is a type and anti-type. It's not exactly correlated because there's no throne in Israel, but we'll talk about what that means. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent, here's the tent. Okay, we had the tent in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, later the temple, this place of God. Well, that's another one of these. That the Lord set up not man for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Gifts and sacrifices are another where we see this sort of Old Testament idea fulfilled and completed in the New Testament. Thus it is uh, necessary for the priest to also have something to offer. Now if you were on earth, he is Jesus, right? The new high priest, the better high priest. If you were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. That would be the Old Testament priest, right? And he says this in another place. Doesn't say it here. I don't think we're going to talk about it. But the, one of the points the Hebrew author makes, Jesus actually couldn't be a priest under the old law because he's not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah, right? So he, he literally couldn't do that. But what? These things, the high priest, the tent, the sacrifices, the throne, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And we can go through down the list. The original thing in the Old Testament, he's shown this thing on Mount Sinai. This is what you're going to do. But what he's shown is not exactly what ends up playing out, right? Because he's shown a vision, an ethereal, spiritual thing that then has to be put into practical terms of materials and space and dimensions and all these different things, the shadow of the heavenly things. And then that translates to what we come to today, the tent. Well, we don't have a tent now. It's not this building. It's a nice building. Doesn't look anything like the temple did in the Old Testament. The place where God resides. Well, in the Old Testament, it was literally a building. Right? It was in the tent, and then it was in the temple, and the Holy of Holies, and you had the Ark of the Covenant, and there was God, and it was awesome, and, and the priest could only go in once a year, and all these different things that were going on. To today, the heavenly things, the true realities, as he says in another place, of the tent where God resides is what? Well, he says it in Corinthians. The author of Hebrews, I think Hebrews is after Corinthians, says, what does Paul say in Corinthians? We are the temple of the living God. And God lives in us. The shadow. Man, the tent was just a shadow. Can you imagine God going from living in a building to living in the hearts and souls of his people? Man, well does he describe it as a shadow. So, such a, a weak 
comparison, a thing that is so inferior, tent and canvas and wood and brick and mortar, versus the living souls of his children. Hebrews 9, 18 through 23. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had, declared by, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. We, Matt uh, was pretty eloquent this morning in his articulation of the blood of the covenant. As Jesus, we think about what he's done for us, and we remember this every Sunday, the blood of the covenant, he says, in the Last Supper. This cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Different than what was going on in the Old Testament, but there is a comparison to be made. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's still true. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things. Not the things themselves, the heavenly things themselves, but the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Again, what is that? The high priest, the temple, the altar, the tent, these physical things. But the heavenly things themselves with better things than these, better sacrifices than these. What are the better sacrifices? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? We're going to talk about that as we go through the study of the Lamb. He and his blood purifies not the temple. That doesn't exist anymore. Not the tabernacle. That hasn't existed for millennia. Not the structure or the altar, but purifies. It does purify his temple in a sense, but the temple of his people, right? As opposed to the temple of stone and wood. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there are a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament, all of these things that we've been discussing, the elements of the Old Testament, a shadow. Sometimes he says copy, sometimes he says shadow, sometimes there's type, sometimes there's anti-type, sometimes there's representations, sometimes there's correspondence. Whatever word is being used, it's describing the same thing. The Old Testament law is a shadow of the good things to come, the things that we have. I like how he says this. The true form of these realities. What reality? The reality of God's relationship to his people and how that relationship is accomplished. How is it that we can draw near to God? Well, in the true way, the true form of these realities, we draw near to God not with the blood of bulls and goats. That's insufficient. It's impossible. We draw near to God rather through the blood of, well, if to use the language of the study that we're going to be doing, the blood of the lamb, the eternal lamb, the true lamb and not the pale imitation of the Old Testament. So, as we go through the image of the Lamb, as we're going to go through the next few weeks, months, however long it takes, this is one of those types, copies, or shadows. And it's interesting, the first appearance of a Lamb in the Bible narrative, this is what we're going to talk about next week, happens quite early on, long before the Passover of Moses. We have the first instance of a Lamb in Scripture. And even after the Passover, we'll examine that in depth, not next week, but probably the week after that, there were a lot of sacrificial laws. We'll look at those too. These are the first three lessons. First instance of the Lamb next week. 
Passover the week after that. And then these sacrificial laws that required specifically a lamb. What was all the, what's the business with that? Uh, all of these different things that are in, in all the different ways that the lamb was used and it had to be prepared and the different sins that were offered for, a uh, lamb was offered for and the different people that offered it and, you know, all these different things. Why was that? As the Hebrew author teaches us, this was but, again, a shadow of the true form of these because the lambs in the Old Testament, no matter how pure they were, no matter how great they were, were inherently insufficient, incapable of taking away sin. So why go through the whole business at all? This ends up being the inevitable question, right? The Old Testament serves as but a copy or a shadow of the true reality. Why not just start with the true reality? Why not just start with the real thing? Why are we going through this business of all these copies and insufficient things? Why not start with the true thing? Galatians 3, 15 through 18. There is a reason for it. Galatians 3, 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, but referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The type of the lamb first appears with Abraham, not Moses. In Genesis 22, we'll talk about this story next week, as he is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac. Goes up the mountain, and what does Isaac ask? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. And it's hard to tell in the moment. He says that. At what point in the story does he begin to wonder? Yeah, God's going to provide the lamb. Don't worry, Isaac. But there has to be a moment, we'll talk about this next week, where eh, as he's raising, is it when he's raising the knife? Is it when he's tying his son? Is it when he begins to descend? There's a moment, I suspect, where he begins to wonder, is there a lamb? Is there really a lamb going to come? And so we see this promise after that story. God makes this promise to Abraham, right? And he's, he's said it several times already, but that was one of the, the final tests for Abraham. Is this the person that I'm going to enact my promises through? The promise that then later on, 430 years later, the law came. And again, the question, okay, we're going back to Abraham. Great, Abraham, the father of faith. Awesome, huzzah. But still, why do the business with the law 430 years later? Why give that at all? Why go through that business? Galatians 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It's almost like he knew that people would ask that. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made until Jesus should come. And it was to put in place through angels by an intermediary. Who's the intermediary? That's Moses, right? Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God, specifically the promise made to Abraham? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law was never intended to be the true reality. That's what the Hebrew author is saying, right? The law was never intended to be the thing that gave life. The old law, we should say the law of Moses... If that had given life, we could have just kept going with that. But that was never its goal. That was never its intent. It was always to be an inferior shadow of the thing to come. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In the law, 
the lamb sacrifices is part of this, a small part. There's other stuff, right? We see the insufficiency of human effort, the inadequacy of animal substitution, the inadequacy in essence of the flesh, of this mundane material existence. God gives ample opportunity for us to understand. It doesn't matter how many laws I give you. It doesn't matter what the kind of laws I give you are. It doesn't matter how I relate to you. Is this going to be a physical kingdom or not? It doesn't matter what I do for you. You guys are not good enough. And by you guys, I mean us guys, right? We are not good enough. We are shown that by the law. Which imprisoned, I like this word imprisoned, everything under sin. How did it imprison everything under sin? Well, now I know all the ways that I'm inadequate. Paul says it in Romans a different way. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said do not covet. But then when I realized, and I'm paraphrasing in, in Romans 7, when I realized what coveting is, and then I could covet. I could start doing that more, right? We are inadequate, and by extension, because we are inadequate by extension... The animal sacrifices, which the Hebrew author already said, right? Impossible to take away the sins by the blood of bulls and goats. Our relationship with God cannot be based in physical things. It can't. Either our righteousness or stuff of this world, stuff of this reality. It's insufficient to proclaim us righteous, to bring us into relationship with God. At the same time, though, by going through this whole business with the law and all the different sacrifices and all the things, we do learn some important truths about what God is looking for. What kind of sacrifice is sufficient? Well, we see that in the comparison between the sacrifice of the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Jesus. And really, this is wrapped up in the concept of the Lamb. Beginning with Genesis 22, all the way through the Old Testament, beginning the, and then the Passover and then the laws, we see the qualities that both A, make a real lamb insufficient, and then B, make the spiritual lamb sufficient, perfect, good enough for us. We see what kinds of things God is looking for in a sacrifice of his lamb, Jesus, but then the sacrifices that we offer too, right? The sacrifice that we give to God, we see again the, what God is looking for. As we go through this study, we're going to be constantly asking, so what? I try to do this a lot in most of our sermons. I, you know, I try to relate this to what is the practical point of this. We think about the practical point of these types and any types. Well, there's a couple. Number one, you need to study your Old Testament more. I say you. We. We need to study our Old Testaments more. A lot of the Lamb stuff, if you just come to this and you just, the first book you read is the, the, the Gospels, that's fine. A lot of people were probably converted that way. But if you're a Gentile and you're reading the, the Gospels and you suddenly come to John saying, behold the Lamb, what are you immediately going to think? Why, why is he calling him the Lamb? What's the point of that? Well, you know that because the Old Testament. You know that because all the stuff that we're going to talk about in the Old Testament. By understanding the Old Testament, the, the laws and the sacrifices and all the different things, we are going to gain a deeper appreciation for what we have. The true reality of what we have. Why is it so much better? Why should I be so grateful? When we start reading through Leviticus and Numbers and the lamb sacrifices, the, our first reaction should be, I'm so glad I don't have to do that. <laughs> right? I'm so glad that I don't, it's not, that's not what I have to do. Right? I'm, I'm so glad that that's not invest, the, the thing that I have to invest in anymore. And as we learn some of these things, I hope one of the things that's going to be emphasized as we go through this study 
along with the betterness of our lamb versus the betterness or versus the inadequacy of the Old Testament lambs is a commensurate responsibility. I have a better system. Jesus has given me a better system of living and being righteous and relating to God. But with that better system is a extra level of responsibility that I am to invest more in my spiritual connection with God to invest more in effort and in time and in thinking about, for example, the Old Testament, the priests, they're doing all the sacrifices. It was the Levites, they were doing it. We come to today. Well, I'm not offering animal sacrifices, but who's offering a sacrifice today? It's not just the priests. Actually, it kind of is just the priests. We could say it this way. Who's a priest? Not just the Levites. Now we're all priests, which means we all have responsibility. Commensurate with the better covenant is more serious responsibility for us. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, we'll end with this verse. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and again, we can see these comparisons, not the holy place on earth, but a temple. I don't have to go to Jerusalem and find this holy place. The, the one place on earth where God's presence resides, the better holy place is what? Well, wherever God's people are, there he is. Wherever I am, if I'm God's people, there God is, because he lives in me. He literally is in me right now, the Holy Spirit given to us. I'm entering into his presence in prayer, in worship, in communion. I'm, I'm entering literally into the holy place. To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Lamb, bull of our goat, the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through, his cur through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, a uh, great priest rather, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I'll pause there for a minute. I said this already. Who is it that's drawing near to the holy place? In the Old Testament, there was levels of it. Certain, everybody could go to a certain point, and then past that certain point, you could only be a Levite, and then past that point, you could only be a priest, and then past that point, you could only be the high priest. There's these levels of approaching God. That's all gone now. Who is responsible for approaching God on your behalf? You are. You are responsible for drawing near to our creator and savior. And because of that, think about all the purification rites for the priests they had to go through. Again, so glad I don't have to go through all that stuff. Except I do have to go through purification rites. What are they? I need to have a full assurance of faith. I need to have my heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. My body needs to be washed with pure water. I need to cleanse myself before I can approach him. I can't shove that off on somebody else. It has to be me that does it. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised to be faithful. Not that I'm doing it by myself, right? There is an element of this. It is together. And let us consider then how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we study the Lamb, we're going to see what God wants from those who would offer sacrifice to him 
and what God wants out of the sacrifice. Both sacrifice itself has some requirements. We'll see through the Old Testament what ways the lamb was good and what ways the lamb was insufficient. But we're going to be drawing back to this point. We offer the sacrifice and we are the sacrifice. Following in the footsteps of the lamb, the actual, real, true lamb, Jesus, who offered himself as the sacrifice, wanting of those who offer sacrifice, what is God wanting of the sacrifices that are offered? Not a lamb. Again, I can't say this enough, how grateful I am that we don't have to do that. Can you imagine? Oh, the smell. It must have been, oh man, the smell of the sacrifices. And yet we come to God and we are what? Supposed to be offering that pleasing aroma to him of worship. Hopefully we did that today. I hope we did that today. Hopefully we'll do that tomorrow too. Not corporately in corporate worship, but we'll offer ourselves as living sacrifices again tomorrow. And the day after that and the day after that. And if you're struggling with that, the invitation as we offer is in this verse. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're the one, and I love this analogy, the stirring up. You ever have hot chocolate, and you make the hot chocolate packet, and you start drinking the hot chocolate, and then like halfway through your cup, what happens? All the hot chocolate's gone. It's all settled down to the bottom. That happens to all of us. And what do you have to do? You have to stir it back up to get the chocolate back into the water so we can drink the chocolate. Maybe you're the one that's settled to the bottom. You have some struggle, some difficulty. You're, you're in a low point in your life. You just can't seem to get it going spiritually. We would be the ones to stir you up, right? But we need to know if that needs to happen. We're not mind readers, unfortunately. We need to know if that's something we can do for you. Come while we stand and sing.